City Church. Uh, our scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, the 13 verses of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. This is um, in the Bible in, the, in front of you on page 899. It'll also be here on the screens behind me. If you are physically able, could you please stand to honor the reading of God's word? And again, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many idols, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to an idol? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be. Pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are a people who are, are prone to, more than we would like to admit, assert our rights and our personal well-being at the expense of other people. This is a corporate problem, not just for us, but really everybody in all times and places, part of the human condition. And so we acknowledge in particular this morning how relevant this text is and how much help we need. Spirit, illuminate this word and change our hearts. We want to leave here different people, more in awe of you, with more love for one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us are presently abstaining from different kinds of food, possibly for Lent, possibly to lose weight, possibly if you're like me because particular foods give you tummy aches, possibly because you're concerned that food has become an idol in your life. <coughs> Can't prove this empirically, but it seems like American Christians started paying more attention to what they were eating at some point in the late 90s 
and then eventually the Daniel Plan weight loss program was published in 2011, and then we were off to the races. And now there are so, so many Christian diet programs, the Eden Diet, the Hallelujah Diet, Take Back Your Temple, <laughs> Bod for God, that's with a number four, to be clear. <coughs> so 1 Corinthians chapter 8 should be no big thing for us, right? Certainly, the past few chapters of this letter have been a bit spicy, but now, at last, we have a subject matter that meshes well with the times. And I mean, shoot, some of us, we're in Gainesville here, we're already vegetarians, we're already vegan. And amen. Except that, I hate to break it to you, this passage is not really about food. It's not really about food. It's not even really about meat or idol temples. I suppose this is good news for candy manufacturers and companies like Bluebell, for whom, by the way, Lent must just be an absolute rain cloud of a season. But for the rest of us, this is really uncomfortable news because, in truth, this passage casts the ways in which many Jesus followers are relating to each other right now into some very questionable light. It challenges our speech, it challenges our actions, our postures, and a decidedly me-first age that has undoubtedly influenced the church of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, in God's mercy, the same passage also points us to a much better way and even gives us some gospel resources for the journey. So I'd imagine we're all in for a bit of conviction this morning alongside some very real hope for personal and corporate change. Two questions this morning in search of ways for the church to be a counterculture of other-oriented, sacrificial love for one another. Number one, what do we know? And then number two, how do we love? Two questions. Number one, what do we know? And then secondly, how do we love? First, what is it that we know? In the first six chapters of this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul addressed reports that he had heard about the Corinthian church. However, in chapter 7, Paul began his response to a letter the Corinthians had sent to him, initially spending a significant amount of time addressing questions about marriage and singleness and sexuality. Here in chapter 8, he continues his response to their letter, although he pivots to a different, yet still very significant matter that will remain in the background for the next three chapters. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning food offered to idols, something that they were asking about in their letter, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. On the surface, this transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8 takes us from one extreme of the relevant spectrum all the way to the other. Today, pretty much everybody is talking about marriage and singleness and sexuality. These are flashpoint issues. But you know what we're absolutely not talking about? 
and the church of Jesus Christ, whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols, especially in the case of today's passage, if someone invites us to eat said meat in the idol's temple. I thought about provoking this conversation artificially by making my way through all 78 Publixes that we have here in Gainesville, and putting some stickers on the ground beef that said previously sacrificed to idols. <laughs> I ran out of time, I ran out of stickers. And that's probably for the best anyway, because I found out this week that actually everybody is shopping at Aldi now, so that would have been for nothing. <laughs> we're not talking about it. Corinthian believers were certainly talking about this, though. Because pagan worship was so prevalent in their day among the Gentiles, which meant that pagan temples and pagan sacrifices were prevalent, which meant that there was always a lot of idol meat available for consumption, and many of their neighbors and co-workers, etc., were doing exactly that. They would make sacrifices, and they would stick around together in the temple, kind of in a, a fellowship hall, to eat the leftover meat that wasn't burned on the altar. And these gatherings became a central, even vital social location in Corinth that you did not want to miss. You would get FOMO if you were not at these gatherings. Attendance may have even been expected depending on your vocation and your association with various trade guilds. All of which really, really pressurized Christians some of whom justified their participation in these meals by appealing to their knowledge, verse 1, which Paul describes in verse 4 as knowing that the idols being worshipped with the sacrifices and fellowship meal have no real existence. Certainly these, these pagans think they are celebrating their so-called gods, verse 5, but since those gods don't exist, we can make our way to the temple and eat the meat because in truth, it is nothing more than a happy meal. And they made such pious sounding arguments, those who felt this freedom to eat the meat. See the end of verse 4, apparently referring to and interpreting Deuteronomy 6.4, the first verse of what's known in Judaism as the Shema, by arguing that, hey, there is no God but one. Which is a great way to make your argument if you're anticipating pushback from fellow Christians or Jews, the Shema being the bedrock text for monotheism. Oh, you're more concerned than we are about this food and idolatry connection? Well, have you read the Shema? Which, of course, they had, especially faithful Jews who recited it twice per day. Don't you know that all other gods are just pretend gods? If this line of reasoning sounds both correct and smug, well, ding, 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 which explains Paul's response. He's on board with the big picture doctrinal stance. He agrees with that. Verses 5 and 6, I agree with your statements for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, we know that there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And by the way, notice that Paul just 
never misses an opportunity to do a bit of Christology, reminding the Corinthian church that while there is one God, both the Father and the Son are that God, along with the Holy Spirit, although Paul isn't dealing specifically with the Holy Spirit right here. God and Lord are both God titles, and both the Father and the Son are clearly eternal, the uncaused causes of all other things that exist. Jesus having some kind of unique role in holding all things together. See, for example, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the true and living God, contra the claims of those made, for example, by Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups who make Christian-sounding statements and use a Christian label while simultaneously denying the deity of Jesus and the Trinity. However, despite his doctrinal alignment, Paul detects an attitude problem, some spiritual arrogance. Back to verse 1, Corinthians, this knowledge that you have apparently puffs up because it's puffing you up. And since you're theologically correct, and yet at the same time you are wrong based on the way you're failing to lovingly build up your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who see things about the temple meals differently than you do. So yes, they knew some things about God. They knew their, their systematic theology, which is important. Sound doctrine matters a whole lot. But they had room for improvement as far as truly knowing God himself. They knew something, but, verse 2, they did not yet know as they ought to know. The kind of heart knowledge that only comes from being with God and having our affections changed by the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. Which shows us that spiritual arrogance, City Church, is the produce of of head knowledge exceeding heart knowledge. And it reminds us that head knowledge is only useful in the hands of those with heart knowledge. City Church, what do we know? What do we know? Do we know things about God? Or do we really know and love God? especially in academic settings like Gainesville. It is commonplace to think of spiritual growth mainly in terms of learning more, of reading more books, and listening to more podcasts, and watching more YouTube videos, all of which can be very helpful in the right place. But it turns out that spiritual growth is mainly about love. Have you ever considered this? Why? Because God is love. 1 John chapter 4. So, as we spend time being with God, we experience His love and are truly filled with His love. And then with the Spirit's help, we become more loving ourselves, loving both God and other people. That is spiritual growth. Knowing things about God is still really important, but all of that is in service of rightly enjoying God as we spend time with Him, which changes us inwardly and results in new external behaviors. And if it's been a while since you've seen the full description 
of what this external change looks like, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Learning is important, but it cannot replace being with God. Doing is important. It cannot replace being with God. And in fact, learning or doing without the being tends to either A, burn us out spiritually, because even if in some respects we're doing the Lord's work, we're not doing it in His way, or B, it makes us insufferably arrogant and unloving toward the very same people we're supposed to be building up. Here at City Church, I tend to be more concerned about burnout, given our city's very ambitious culture, than insufferable arrogance. And I think, by and large, we have a very hospitable and gracious culture here at City Church, which is such a blessing and an example of God's kindness to us. But even so, this arrogance is always a threat. It is always crouched at our door. And at the very least, it's all around us these days, especially online. I mean, in the, in the last five or so years, maybe more, there has been a bona fide explosion of professing Christian YouTubers and podcasters who have this remnant mentality in which, you know, they are basically the last remaining defenders of truth because everybody else is either too alt-right or too woke or whatever, and they're bombastic and they're hypercritical of other people and they name names and they question motives without much evidence. And probably more than a few of us listen to this kind of stuff because it's edgy and it's entertaining, maybe even comforting us as we make our way through uncertain times. But as the rapper Shy Lin puts it, we do not have the right to cast off the fruit of the Spirit in the name of standing for truth. Amen? We do not have the right to cast off the fruit of the Spirit in the name of standing for truth. Which means that some of us might have some unsubscribing to do this week for the sake of filling our minds with more Spirit-filled voices and for the sake of simply being with Jesus more instead of blanketing our lives with unending noise. Recently, I've been watching a lot of apologetics videos with my wife, and those are really helpful, but I was thinking this week as I was preparing, like, it does us no good if we're not actually being with Jesus. These arguments are not helpful. These persuasive lines of reasoning are not helpful unless we love the Jesus that we're trying to uphold and defend. Speaking of being with Jesus, that requires a bit of margin, doesn't it? A bit of slowness a bit of silence. Rushing and hurrying isn't at all conducive to just being with Jesus because the disciplines of being like Sabbath, prayer, meditating on Scripture, going for a walk, gardening, whatever, they aren't possible without margin. And yet we live in a moment where most people 
are rushing and hurry. So being with Jesus will require some counterculture living, some strangeness in the eyes of the world, and it will require real vision for helping certain others in the body of Christ find margin for being. I'm thinking, for example, of, of people like single parents or, or caretakers looking after a loved one who's chronically ill. Countercultural living will be required. But the payoff, think about it. It's more love for God and more love for people that we might build them up. I haven't seen this connection made before, and I get nervous about peddling novel ideas. But I really think this is true. Excessive rush and hurry are two of the major ingredients for being spiritually arrogant because you lack the margin to be with God. And simultaneously, you might think yourself to be rather impressive on account of all you're doing. One under-discussed avenue for being a jerk is to have an overfilled life where you have no margin to be with Christ. And in being with Jesus, which ends up being, in this case, actually an antidote to arrogance and excessive self-concern, in being with Jesus, get this, we are belonging to the one, verse 3, who truly knows us more than anybody else. The primary sense here is that he knows us as his beloved spiritual children who are part of his family. But also, he knows everything about us. He knows what we're experiencing and has experienced trials himself. He knows exactly what we need. Who wouldn't want to spend time being with a God like that? And actually, apathy toward being with God ends up being spiritually concerning, suggesting that we might not really know God at all or be known by Him, even if we know a lot of things about Him. Even if we would win a Bible trivia game running away or win the prize for the biggest theological library. The contours of this passage, though, ask us to really press into this matter of loving others even to some degree, what this loving others should look like in practice. So that brings us to our second question. First question, what do we know? And then the second question, how do we love? Specifically, how do we love one another in the body of Christ? We've seen that Paul agrees with the knowledge held by some Corinthian believers, apparently the ones comfortable with eating meat sacrificed to idols, that literal temple idols aren't real because there's only one true God. And yet, he goes on to say, starting in verse 7, that however, not everybody possesses this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Again, Paul agrees that the actual practice of eating meat sacrificed to an idol is a spiritually neutral thing. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But you don't have the right to become a stumbling block to fellow believers who, 
perhaps on account of former associations with idol worship, still believe or kind of believe that said idols are very real. In church, in all humility, this situation, it's not that hard to imagine, is it? If you are a full-blown idol worshiper, just imagine that, who becomes a Christian miraculously, it's still going to take a minute for the idols aren't real ramifications to sink in because for years and maybe decades, you believed that idols are quite real and you organized the rhythms of your everyday life around idol worship in idol temples. Sure, in the meantime, that might make you a a weaker believer until you mature spiritually, but I have this hunch that a whole lot of us would be weaker believers, at least for a season, if this was our story. Since the believers with the knowledge don't have the right to be a stumbling block to weak believers. The warning in verse 10 makes a lot of sense. If you do eat meat sacrificed to idols, you may not want to do so at an idol's temple. Because then a weak believer could see you doing this and join you, believing that it's fine to do so because you're doing it, even though they kind of still think it's idol worship. And then at the very least, they would be pricking their consciences, doing something they think is wrong, a spiritually unhealthy practice that compromises our ability to really commune with the Lord in faith and listen to him, or even worse, even worse, you might be drawing someone right back into idol worship, especially if their conscience is weak in the sense that they are still reckoning with the cost of giving up idol worship for the sake of following Christ. Initially, and we know this, initially these costs of giving up your old life, they build over time. I just want to be honest with you about that. It gets harder and harder, pressurizing you to find a relief valve to deal with the discomfort of dying to your old self. And believers are called by God to bear these burdens with one another, which is the very opposite of asserting your rights in a way that makes it easy for weaker believers to find that valve. Considering all of this, Paul wants to know, how in the world can you strut around with your knowledge, potentially destroying, verse 11, the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died? You would certainly be sinning against that brother or sister, verse 12, and in so doing, sinning against Christ, And if we're talking about possibly leading someone back into idolatry, we're talking about destroyed here in an internal sense. Not just a bad day filled with sad feelings because you ate that thing you said you wouldn't. This is a bit of an aside, but this week when I read the words, brother for whom Christ died, My eyes welled up big time, (laughs) right there in my office. And mind you, this is not a regular occurrence for me, unlike some very dear colleagues of mine who can cry their way through the book of Leviticus if they put their mind to it. It's not me. I teared up a bit during the slow clap at the end of school runnings, if you've seen that. 
I cheered up a lot of it during Dreamin' Wild, an artsy little film that slapped me right in the feels. But that's about it for me, okay? My eyes welled up because... Can you imagine the spiritual renewal that could sweep through the American church if we really believe this about one another? If instead of becoming increasingly tribal and pillaging one another on social media and casting aspersions upon the folks who don't vote the way we do, can you imagine what would happen if instead of doing that, we made it a habit of saying to ourselves, this is a brother for whom Christ died. Or this is a sister for whom Christ died. Before every social media post. Before every snarky YouTube video. Before every gossipy comment we make to a friend. Can you imagine? I don't know about you. Maybe this is just me. I am desperate for Christ to break into our present moment to redeem and to renew and to restore. I mean desperate. And yet the way we are treating each other often feels like a spiritual blockade, and it's exhausting. Aren't you exhausted? But if God is in fact pleased to accomplish such renewal, which thankfully he loves to do even in spite of us, it will look a lot like the portrait Paul paints for us here in verse 13. It will look like believers becoming so consumed with love for one another that if food, that is, eating idle meat, makes our brother or sister stumble, we will never eat it. Never. That is, we are more than willing to give up something that we really enjoy, something we are convinced is morally permissible for us to enjoy, for the sake of loving one another. In some ways, this is just a, a fancy restatement of what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I recognize that not all of us can immediately think of something that we need to start abstaining from in order to love one another. I bet not most of us eat a lot of idle meat, although, of course, in other contexts, this kind of issue does remain relevant. Alcohol consumption tends to come to mind for some people, especially consuming alcohol in, in public places where you may well be causing difficulties for fellow members of the family of God who need to stay a mile away from consuming it themselves. I'll let you do some more thinking on all of that. But here's the main thing. Church, it's our posture that matters the most. Far more than any specific issues. Are we willing to abstain from anything when necessary? Are we holding so loosely onto the things of this world? Recall our discussion last week at the end of chapter 7 that we are willing to make significant personal sacrifices for the sake of caring well for our brothers and sisters in Christ should those sacrifices become necessary? Are we willing, if you're in other parts of the world, to give up idle meat, alcohol? If you're a kid, 
Sour Patch Kids. I don't know. Pray about it. And not only does this posture help us love others well, you see that it promotes unity in the body of Christ, something that's in shorter supply right now, I think, than toilet paper was at the beginning of COVID. You know what's toxic to the cause of vibrant spiritual unity? Going around saying, I have rights. And that's exactly what we're selling right now in our very individualistic age of you got to do what's best for you. Want to know what catalyzes miraculous supernatural unity if you're interested in some of that? Remembering that Jesus gave up his rights. That, and I'm just continuing here in Philippians chapter 2, that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A necessary death for the sake of dying for our sins, and ultimately conquering the power of sin and death in his resurrection, that we might repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and in doing so, become the righteousness of God. Remember that, believe that, and then, and only then, do we have a chance in the world of laying down our own rights for the sake of of loving other people, and not only doing it just because we have to, but gladly and joyfully, as Jesus did, who joyfully endured the cross, Scripture teaches us. I'll end with this reflection of sorts. This is really encouraging. I'm not sure if you're aware, but there is bona fide revival going on in Iran right now, I mean big time. Uh, recently, there was a doctrinal, uh, uh, theolo uh, not a theolo like a religious survey that went out to kind of gauge the religious inclinations of people who are living there in the diaspora that are living outside of Iran. Recently, according to the survey, about one million people living in Iran called themselves Christians, which if you know anything about the history of Iran is remarkable. And then thousands more Christians have fled persecution, taking refuge, this is according to Christianity Today, among the extensive Iranian diaspora in the West. Some have established ministries to evangelize among them, while others broadcast satellite TV programs, engage in remote discipleship efforts, or preside over a network of underground house churches. Many would multitask but few would collaborate until very recently there was this unbelievable gathering of this diaspora, members in London from over 40 churches and ministries voted unanimously to partner together for an Iranian evangelical alliance. Isn't that incredible? 
Further votes were taken to choose a seven-member steering committee to represent the whole task to take a year to study and recommend best practices as an additional 60 leaders observe the proceedings online. One of the most beautiful reports I've ever heard as a follower of Jesus. People from Iran coming to know Christ and then this diaspora of uh, Iranian Christians coming together in order to see how they can journey together for the sake of the gospel. What does this tell us? Number one, the gospel is so rich that it is possible for people in this diaspora to come together despite all sorts of cultural differences and different opinions about how to do different kinds of things. The gospel is that rich, praise God. But also, can you imagine how devastating it would be if instead of gathering together, people started just going around parading their rights and saying, you know what? We're going to front ourselves and promote ourselves. Let's alliance be done. There's so much richness offered to us in the gospel. And what I am seeing, based on what I'm hearing with this London gathering, is that God could really do that sort of thing here. But it's going to require a miraculous work of God in which, by His grace, our love for one another vastly exceeds our interest in ourselves and the way in which we care about our own rights. I think that God might be on His way here in America, just like He's doing in a lot of other parts of the world, to do some mighty renewal among us. But it's going to require, by His grace, laying down of rights for the sake of loving others well. Significant personal sacrifice and charitability by His grace. Amen.